0: You are listening to an HD Smartcast
1: original. This could be a great intro.
2: Hi, I'm Akshay.
0: Hi, this is Saurabh, and you are listening to the Founder Thesis Podcast. We meet some of the most celebrated startup of founders in the country,
2: and we want to learn how to build a unicorn.
0: The founder ambition is important for scaling. Founders don't have the ambition, it won't scale. So, for example, if you take taxi aggregation, you have a big gorilla in the form of Uber, but uh, Ola has a founder who is ambitious. So, it is founder ambition that helped Ola, you know, successfully take on Uber. Founder ambition has helped Big Basket take on the likes of, uh, you know, Amazon. Founder has helped the Swiggy, for example, you know, get to what it is. So I think foundation, we've talked of extensively. We've talked of foundation. You can't build a large company and build for scale without laying a strong foundation. So foundation is extremely critical as well.
1: If a startup founder needed to find a mentor to learn about managing HR in a fast-growing company, the first person who would pop up in his mind is none other than T.N. Hari, the head of HR at Big Basket. Hari has been steering the HR function at startups for 18 years now and has authored multiple books on startups that are not only bestsellers but are also full of wisdom about navigating explosive growth. At Big Basket, Hari has built up enviable systems, processes and teams which have made the online grocery store one of the very few companies that actually grew in the pandemic. Its efficient and customer-friendly employees are simply the envy of all startups. In this episode of Founder Thesis, TN Hari shares the secret of how to scale startups from a people and processes perspective and dives into his journey of self-discovery. Here's Hari talking about his one-year-long Tata Steel Management Program.
2: So uh, how was your management training program like at Tarasil? I imagine you must have undergone some amount of time as a management trainee without being assigned to a specific role.
0: Uh, it was a one-year training program, very, very comprehensive, which also included a three-week uh, trek in the Himalayas uh, along with uh, Bachendri Pal, who was the first uh, Indian woman to climb Mount Everest. Okay. It's very comprehensive where we had an exposure to the entire operations of the company, right from the ore mines to the collieries to the you know, marketing divisions to manufacturing different plants, steel melting shops, the complete works, including all the subsidiaries. So after that, uh, you know, we had an option. All of us were picked from IM Calcutta. There were four of us, campus placement, and all of us were picked for uh, some of the commercial functions like uh, marketing or international trade. But uh, I was very particular that I wanted to join the engineering division. In fact, those days, uh, you know, international trade meant a lot of uh, foreign travel and those days foreign travel was not as common as it is today. And was a bit of a craze, but uh, I think I was never crazy about some of these wrong things in life. So I focused on, uh, you know, working in the engineering division, and that's how I started my career there. So, uh, how long was your stint at Tata uh, Steel? I was there for 14 years in all, 11 years largely in mechanical engineering. Uh, and for three years, I was there in uh, the human capital side. So how did that switch happen? So all my switches in my career have been, uh, you know, an accident. So at that point of time, it was, you know, a 1991 post that uh, I'm sure you recall that, uh, you know, India as a country and the government went bankrupt and we opened up the economy and uh, you know, followed some of the IMF prescriptions, lowered customs duties. And prior to that, it, India was a country you know that was had uh, erected barriers, you know, for international trade, and also followed the Soviet Union model of centralized planning. As a result of which, you know, there was no competition from external sources, nor was there internal competition competition because in the steel industry the ministry of steel decided who would produce what quantity of steel so industry had become i would say very very you know bloated and uh, did not have that competitive energy and spirit but post 91 suddenly when customs duties were lowered these countries these companies were under an existential threat because many CIS countries were dumping steel at prices that were below our cost so imagine prices that were below our cost. So we had to restructure in a very big way, and we got McKinsey to help us with some of the thought process. We reorganized into you know business uh, units. We right sized the company in a big way. We changed the culture completely from a lifelong employment to a base- basis of employment based on performance. Also said no, you know no guarantee of employment. You no know, earlier if you worked for 20 years, your children were guaranteed employment too, not just yourself. So we had to make a change in that as well. So that was large a human capital driven project and i was part of the core team that worked with mckinsey on this so and it's not very uncommon in large companies for people management trainees to be rotated around multiple functions
2: that, that project lasted for those 3 years uh, after you made the switch or
0: that project did not last for 3 years but uh, it might have lasted overall for about 2 years one year uh, it was uh, i was just entered the function and 2 years later i 2 years i did this uh, project and uh, what
2: is the value of a consulting company for uh, change management uh, and, you know, I'm speaking as the founder of a small company where I think, okay, if some change needs to be done, then uh, this is how it should be done and this is, you know, so so just help me understand that perspective that why a large company would bring in a consultant to uh, do change management.
0: Yeah, that's an interesting question because, um, you know, at that point of time, I was uh, relatively young, not very young, but uh, much younger than what I am today, obviously. So I never understood what uh, role these uh, you know consulting companies played. I realized that there were a bunch of youngsters. So there was an engagement manager who would be maybe 32 years old and there would be a bunch of uh, fresh college graduates, typical MBAs from IM, who would be 23 years old. So a bunch of uh, five youngsters whom the company pay, I would say maybe a few crores for um, about $250,000. I remember the bill. You must what have felt thing? that you know more than them. I not side. felt. We I have, I had absolutely no doubt that we knew more than them. So uh, I think the role of a consulting company company is that I think they you know when you pay so much to somebody then the top management begins to pay attention to what is being done so I think uh, internally there are smart people but I think very few companies are smart enough to be able to bring these smart people within a company together around a common goal they need somebody external to come and suggest ideas and sometimes weak managements you know rely on the advice of these companies to drive change I think companies who are smart who have the guts to figure out what is good and have the courage to drive the change don't need consultants i think uh, you know, only weak uh, companies are consultant driven i'm not saying you should not engage consultants at all consultants can help you with some specialized topic for example introduction of a new technology but a steel company can't get a steel consultant a steel company can get an i technology it con- technology consultant to help them with that so that's perfect but help getting a company to you know figure out what should be the strategy for you how do you right size and how you think about you know restructuring the company i think you don't need consultants.
2: So uh, after that three-year stint in people operations, uh, why did you
0: decide to uh, switch the organization. Somewhere after 14 years, or rather uh, 12 years, I began thinking: Is this a company for me in the long run? And I felt uh, I was not a perfect fit in that company. And I have no complaints about against against the company. I think uh, Tatasly was a great company, very very ethical, largely a very ethical company, driven by a good uh, set of uh, principles, high on integrity, great company. But I just felt that there were other the elements with which I, which were important for a person to make a career there, and I didn't fit in there. I, I was a bit of a rule breaker also at Tata Steel in the sense that uh, I wanted to get things done. I didn't want to consult 10 people before figuring out uh, whether I needed to do something or not. So how did that change happen? Like, uh, because I mean, from a manufacturing to uh,
2: like a service organization, that kind of switch is not the easiest to make. And I mean, a lot of companies may even hesitate to hire a guy from manufacturing to come and manage HR in a
0: service company. So how, how did you manage that? They say you know in your career you can never ignore chance and people sometimes underplay the importance of chance. You know when you look back at success in life, you always say you know that uh, I did this, I did that, and you never say you know that something came to me on a platter. Yeah, I was just lucky that something came my way. So that just happened to come my way, and my CV was out there. And I think Daksh was uh, growing rapidly. And there are some phases when an industry grows rapidly and when the industry grows rapidly, they go out of the industry to hire people because they can't, that industry does not exist. BPO industry did not exist. So they therefore, they look at banking, they look at FMCG and they look talent from anywhere So they just found to me and they had found I had worked in some that human capital project was relevant for them saw that I had you know studied at IIT IM, and I met Sanjeev Agarwal who was the founder come CEO and I still have a great relationship with him I'm an advisor to Fundamentum today which has been set up by Sanjeev Agarwal and Nandan Rilekani so it's been a you know lifelong relationship after that. So how old were you when you made that quiz? 37. And I imagine that should have been like a probably a company with an average age of
2: 25 or so because
0: Yes. For me, uh, moving to Daksh was like moving from an oil tanker to a fighter jet. But then as I told you, I was a bit of a rule breaker at uh, So For me, this was, I felt like a fish in water completely. I was able to adapt very quickly. Although in the first couple of months, uh, it took me a couple of months. Uh, but after that, I think I quickly adapted. Hmm and what all roles did you play there I joined the company as uh, in the corporate function in HR as the head of performance management compensation and benefits i used to report to the CHRO that was where i started my career and within uh, a year and a half i was promoted as a CHRO at Daksh so uh, what is uh,
2: what was the state of performance management at that stage and is it more evolved now and you know what is your thesis on performance management
0: Performance management, to my mind, does not depend on the HR function or the HR head at all. Strong performance orientation in any company is driven by the CEO of the company or by two or three you know, key executives in the company. What kind of an orientation they have towards performance? What are the kind of demands they place on people who work with them? Whether set they set high standards for themselves and for the others who work with them? Hmm whether they set high standards for the team, whether they hold people accountable to those standards. So I think those determine whether a company eventually is very performance-oriented or not. I think it largely depends on a few key leaders in the company as to how they you know, view performance, whether they are themselves very strongly oriented towards performance. If Those basic beliefs are there. Then I think the rest is all about creating the right structure and mechanisms. Uh, so Daksh was acquired by IBM after about two years. Part of the was that the management team would continue, you know, with IBM for two years because IBM didn't know the BPO business and they wanted this team to continue and help transition to a team that they might put in place. Uh, after two years, I moved on. I found a company called Virtuza, which was uh, a US Boston headquartered um, IT product come services company, and um, I joined there as the global head of HR. And this was, uh, you know, it was a truly multi-ethnic, multi-cultural, multi-geographical team. And the leadership team of all kinds of people
2: what exactly were they into like what products or what industries did they serve
0: so IT services and IT products IT services uh, like any other uh, services firm, Infosys and uh, this, uh, let's say Wipro but uh, it was a little different from Infosys and Wipro it was more like Accenture and IBM on a much smaller scale in the sense that they've uh, helped transform IT in a company rather than just provide services so it is about re-architecting the whole thing so what you played in on that uh, platform on that that playing field. This also helped uh, companies like Vignette, Pega. They acted as their offshore product development centers. So Vignette and uh, Pega were, you know, companies that built products and they didn't have teams in India. So what user provided them offshore product development, uh, you know, platform. And, of course, we went public. We listed on NASDAQ in August 2007. So, uh, then you spent about three years there. Uh, why did you decide to move on So, after we listed the company on NASDAQ, it became about running a public company. And running a public company is a quarter-on-quarter quarter basis where, you know, every quarter you're looking at, you know, what was the guidance you had provided the previous quarter? Are you going to meet that guidance or not? And it was a lot about compliance. Again, it was about all of compliance and uh, rather than, uh, you know, growth and innovation and uh, disruption. So that I just felt it's time to move on. And there are other opportunities to disrupt, other opportunities to, you know, take a private company public or uh, you know, build companies. So back to my sweet spot. So
2: uh, you... Uh, what next then
0: after Virtusa? After Virtusa, I joined a relatively small company called Amba Research, which was in the knowledge process outsourcing space, which did uh, investment research for investment banks and uh, you know, money managers in the US and Europe, again an outsourcing company. Exactly like what a Motilal Oswal would do, initiating coverage. So we would initiate coverage for you know for a JP Morgan or a Morgan Stanley for the companies that they covered. And we did research reports for them. And why did
2: you choose this company to go to next? So the common theme
0: uh, in my career has been, you know, people have asked me if I have planned my career. The answer has been, I've never planned my career at all. But then when I think back, you know, I found that there are three underlying themes around my career, which is my moves have been based on three, four things. One, of course, I've been extremely curious as an individual. Learning has been more important than me, than roles, power or salaries those that have never battered for me, will I be able to learn by doing this? Will I have an interesting set of, you know, colleagues from whom I could learn? The other thing i always looked at was interesting people. So the second common theme has been, do I like the people that I work for? Do I respect them? Are they people of integrity? Do they stand up to the right values? Are they smart? So that's the second theme in my career. So I think by joining Amba was, again, this, I'm sure there must have been other good companies as well, it's just that I happened to encounter this company and Sanjeev Agarwal, in some ways, you know, who has been my mentor all along, was also on the board of uh, Amba Research. So he said that I joined this company. And my joining Big Basket also is entirely because of Sanjeev Agarwal. Sanjeev was on the board of Big Basket as well.
2: So next, you joined uh, Taxi for sure. Uh, so... Yeah, what was that? How did you end up joining Taxi for Sure, and what was that since like? Oh,
0: well, Taxi for Sure, also you know it came as a recommendation from Sanjeev. Sanjeev told me that Taxi for Sure was a good company, and uh, I met Raghu. Raghu was the founder CEO. When I Taxi for Sure, uh, you know I was forty-eight years old. So Raghu was for thirty-four years old. So you know I've never I've always enjoyed working with young people, but this was the first time I would be reporting to such a young person. So uh, I was looking forward to this meeting with Raghu, and when I met him, you know I like the way the conversation went, you know, he explained to me the business, he explained to me the entire taxi aggregation model, the industry, showed the app and then told me, you know what, I don't think I'm competent to interview you. I've heard a lot about you. I think uh, we'll love to have you on board. So I think that I like the way he handled this and uh, I realized that he's a good guy, high integrity and uh, looked like the opportunity uh, was also interesting and uh, the market size was big. And I figured the taxi aggregation is, you know, one of the next big things. So what were your takeaways from that experience? Taxi for sure experience. Taxi for sure experience. I think uh, the key takeaway was that, you know, irrespective of what you do, sometimes you can get hit by a black swan event and even the best can, you know, come down, be brought down. So taxi for sure and Ola were doing pretty well and both were in the market to raise their $200 million round is that round first with the soft bank $210 million and taxi for sure also was in the, you know, in that mode at that point of time, but just as Raghu was in the U S talking to investors sometime in, uh, you know, December, 2014 and Uber driver raped a female passenger in Delhi and all broke loose at that point of time. So you know all the regulators who already thought that taxi aggregation was illegal began to clamp down on this business. And instead of focusing on the poor law and order situation in Delhi and the safety of women in general, I think the focus was on the taxi aggregators rather than solving the real problem. And this sometimes happens everywhere. And in India, you can see that happening as well sometimes. So um, and then the investors then went into wait and watch mode because nobody knew whether you know this industry would be allowed to continue in the first place. And therefore, everybody said, let's wait and watch. We'll take a decision six months down the road and we didn't have cash for, to run the business for six months. So at that point of time, you know, we took the decision. Both investors at Ola and taxi for sure, came together and figured out that a merger is, uh, you know, good. Fortunately, we were able to get $200 million for the deal. And that's interesting because we didn't have uh, cash to pay a salary three months down the road. And the reason why Ola paid $200 million was because uh, otherwise Uber would have acquired uh, taxi for sure and, uh, you know, got a foothold, big foothold in uh, India. So we were uh, in some ways unlucky, but in some ways very lucky. So, you know, in the, I was there for just 13 months. In 13 months, we were acquired by Ola. So in 13 months, we grew from four cities to 45 cities. So that was explosive growth. And you know, every day I would be in the office by 8 o'clock in the morning. And rarely left office uh, before midnight or before sometimes 1 1 a.m., 2 a.m. So it was about uh, extremely rapid growth. So 13 months of, uh, you know, real uh, team building, hiring people, putting processes in place and scaling rapidly. Uh,
2: What did you learn in terms of navigating that explosive growth? Like, did you form some pieces to uh, help other people who might be seeing that kind of explosive
0: growth? Like, you know, from... That's a topic in itself, Akshay. I've written a book called "Pony to Unicorn: How to Scale Your Startup Sustainably." So it's a 250 pages book. So pressing <laughs> that into you know a very short answer would be difficult because uh, you know growth and scale have multiple dimensions. You need to get uh, all dimensions right. In fact, we talked of a framework in that book, you know, about some of the common things that things that you should get right. So, for example, we've said you need to be in the midst of a mega trend to be able to scale. You need to be, you know, participating in a large market. You can't participate in a small market and expect to become a unicorn. You have to participate in a large market. Take some strategic decisions right. So some, if you get your key strategic decisions right, then you can, you know, tolerate a lot of other missteps that you might end up making. So getting a few strategic choices correct is important. What
2: are those strategic choices?
0: So for example, at Big Basket, one strategic choice we got absolutely correct was inventory-led model. So unlike the asset-like hyper models, which depended on, you know, physical stores to pick and deliver to customers, we chose to build our own inventory. And that has proven to be the only reason why we are successful. Very few others have been able to get that model right. So that was a strategic choice that we made, despite SoftBank and Tiger Global telling us it won't work. We stuck to the strategic choice. So, for example, make my trip made the strategic choice of moving from airline tickets to hotel bookings because airline tickets was a very low margin business. There were all very few number of airlines, and you know you could go to an airline site and book your tickets, and therefore it was not no big deal. But hotels was very difficult because it was a completely disaggregated market and you needed somebody who could bring, you know, that aggregation and uh, make my trip, you know, uh, went into the next orbit after they went into hotels. So it was a steady choice they made you need to get those choices correct. Strategic execution is important after that. Being able to execute thoughtfully, being able to figure out what not to do, being able to figure out how to stay focused, how not to get sucked into activity traps, not doing things that are considered just cool and fashionable. Then other things we talked of a foundation and founder ambition. So founder ambition is important for scaling. Founders don't have the ambition, it won't scale. So for example, if you take taxi aggregation, you have a big gola in the form of Uber, but Ola has a founder who is ambitious. So, it is Founder Ambition that helped Olaf, you know, successfully take on Uber. Founder Ambition has helped Big Basket take on the likes of, uh, you know, Amazon. Founder Ambition has helped Swiggy, for example, you know, get to what it is. So, I think Founder Ambition we've talked of extensively. We've talked of Foundation. You can't build a large company and build for scale without laying this, a strong foundation. So, Foundation is extremely critical as well. How much of it is due to luck? So a good chunk of it, sometimes you know, luck plays a part in this. Actually, uh, you know, I would say my own belief on this, based on what I have seen in life, is that you know, if you're good, you can be successful. Very unlikely you'll be a big failure if you're good. To to taste runaway success, I'm I'm hoping you know what runaway success means. Runaway success is extreme success. I think extremely successful, super success. I think you need dollops of luck to become successful. I think talent is good enough to become successful i think you need to have the element of timing right element of things right which is all luck based for example swiggy, i think they were at the right time right place another company called deliver which big basket ended up acquiring they were the first hyper local you know company in india they did what exactly swiggy is doing but they were ahead of their time and investors at that point of time didn't believe in the food delivery story so i think uh, to be super successful you need to have that element of luck you can't deny that
2: So, uh, after Taxi for Sure got acquired, then uh, what did you decide to do next?
0: So, for me, again, Big Basket was the next place. Big Basket was a company I liked. Again, the bunch of people I met, I liked. She was also on the board. So, I had no doubt that it would be a great company to work for. So, that's how I came on board at uh, Big Basket. So, what has your journey been so far at Big
2: Basket? Uh, How have you seen the company evolve? what have been uh, the key challenges that you have faced in the journey and, you know, what have you learned from those challenges?
0: So Big Basket, uh, life for me has been different uh, at Big Basket than in the other startups. So in the previous startups, I actually was very inward looking, focused within the company and focused on ensuring that the company grew without the wheels coming off, helping solve problems within the company and helping find a meaningful exit at big basket the last several years five years i have uh, looked outwards as well i have uh, become a very active part of the startup ecosystem in india i am a mentor at uh, multiple accelerators like techstars silicon road numa i am an advisor to an early stage vc fund called arkam i am an advisor to a late stage vc fund called fundamental partnership i am associated with the multiple educational institutes in different capacities. So I think I have been able to uh, fulfill a lot of my dreams um, the last five years. And Big Basket, I think, uh, we got a few strategic choices correct. I told you that. So Big Basket has been a very grounded company. And one beautiful lesson I learned is that if you get a few things right, a lot of other laws tend to get hidden. And those things, you must get them so right that they can disguise the other weaknesses. And the few things that Big Basket got right was the business model. And more importantly, the attitude which is that we can build a sustainable business we will never be carried away by fashions and fads we will never do anything which you know does not just simply create growth at the expense of profitability because very few very soon the same people who are putting pressure on you for growth will come back to you and ask for profitability so people if you have seen these cycles of profitability and growth in the past you will realize that you need to always balance the two we, Big Basket never does anything for the sake of doing. We never apply for awards and rewards and don't care about awards and rewards. We don't get into activity traps. We don't do anything that sounds good. Good principles, I think, have given us unbelievable strength and have helped build an amazing team. As a result of it, I have a lot of free time now on my hand. So I think the last five years, Big Basket has been generous. They've allowed to do multiple things beyond of uh, you know the company and uh, I end up enjoying my life. What was the headcount when you joined? And what is it today? Today is about twenty eight thousand. It would have been about four 000, five thousand when I joined.
2: Okay. So uh, how did uh, you navigate this from you know like a five x growth uh, of headcount?
0: That's not, not not very difficult if you get a few things right. So we got the structure right, which is that. Uh, we created business units and corporate functions so every region for us is a business unit and all functions in corporate are replicated in the regions or in the business excepting for technology it infra and product otherwise supply chain hr uh, training uh, last mile operations warehousing those functions are there in corporate those functions are there in the regions as well those who run these functions in the regions have a firm line reporting to the business unit head and a dotted line reporting to the respective function heads in corporate and uh, therefore there's an hr head in every region and um, HR heads we hired very competent people training heads we hired very competent people so they helped scale so you don't have to really do much so once you hire competent people we also hired a VP HR we got a VP learning and development all the HR heads in the region reports to the VP HR all the training heads report to the VP learning and development and these people are in charge they help uh, you know the in the regions hire the corporate for- help provide the structure and play some degree of thought leadership, help solve problems. But the execution engines are the businesses. So we build very strong execution engines. So once you build a combination of execution engines in their business and thought leadership in corporate, then it's not very difficult to scale and grow.
2: Okay. Uh, what is the uh, big Basket's hiring uh, philosophy? You know, what do you look for when you hire people?
0: So typically, companies look at three broad levels of skills, you know, irrespective of what they may say. First is ability to execute, ability to think clearly, and you can call it whatever you want. Think clearly can be strategic thinking, can be anything, right? Ability to think clearly and communication Ability to execute everyone needs. So that's a core capability. Whether we hire people in businesses or in corporate functions, ability to execute is important. We realize that we are a low margin business and therefore we need to take a slightly different look at people's strategy. And therefore, you know, the moment you add clear thinking on top of execution, the price point goes up. Right. So we said clear thinking, we want people in corporate to all think clearly. But in the businesses, if you can't think clearly, no worries, as long as you can execute. Because corporate functions will think for you, will lay out processes, and average people, if they are backed up by good processes, can deliver outstanding experience again and again. Clarity of thought only in corporate functions. And with education skills, adds another layer of cost price points to talent. We said we Communication skills, irrespective of whether in corporate or in the regions, we need only execution and clear thinking And for example, the supply chain head at Big Basket is a guy who grew up in a village in Andhra Pradesh, studied in a proposal town, did odd jobs, and has joined Big Basket, and at the age of 35 is the national supply chain head. In fact, during the current crisis he's the guy who's helped us you know reconfigure a lot of things so uh, our entire approach is you know humble people so for example we have a you know head of analytics cto they're all people of great education backgrounds but one prerequisite is that when we hire people from these backgrounds they should have that humility to work with those with less privileged education and you know humility is a very important uh, trait when we hire people Uh, what is the uh, process you follow to
2: really judge whether someone has the ability to execute, the ability to think clearly. Like, you know, what is your selection process like?
0: So it is a combination of multiple interviews and reference checks. And, uh, you know, interviews may not tell you a lot, but if you do your interview well, they tell you sufficiently. So poor interviews um, have zero correlation with uh, ability to do a job. Good interviews have a reasonably good correlation. So poor interviews will be asking somebody, tell me, you know, can you execute well? That's a poor way of figuring out whether somebody can execute, right? But if you ask the person, tell me a little more, a few examples of where, you know, you had to take something end-to-end, take initiative and get some things done under difficult circumstances. Can you talk of some of those examples and have deeper conversations with some of those? So multiple interviews followed by reference checks. I think reference checks are important, especially at leadership levels, because they tell you a lot about a person. So what are some of the challenges of managing a blue-collar workforce and uh, how does Big Basket navigate them? Challenges of managing blue-collar is, uh, once you understand them, it's not very difficult, which is that uh, the blue-collar category is looking for two or three things. In India, they come from the less privileged you know, sides of society and they are looking for respect. I think uh, in India, for various reasons, you know, if you are uh, working, if you're a blue collar worker, you know typically people don't respect them. You know they tend to you know take them for granted. Uh, respect is something unfortunately should, you know is not uh, given irrespective of what you do in a country like India, which has been caste ridden for many centuries. Uh, so I think uh, if you learn how to treat them with respect, they tend to be a little more loyal, and they understand a few things. Should be transparent. Try to explain to them what's happening. You know, be very honest in some things like, you know, salary payment. You know, many companies don't even pay salaries on time because when they're going, rapidly things break. And they think, you know, salaries you can pay a little late, no problem. So, pay salaries on time. Ensure that questions on, you know, deductions, incentives are answered properly. Time and effort is to compute them correctly and pay correctly. That's a sign of respect for them, you know. You, know, you can't uh, delay a white-collar worker's salary. So, how can you delay the accuracy and you know and timeliness of uh, blue, collars. And blue collars also need to be paid fairly. I think said and done, a fair wage is important. And I think these are the two or three things that uh, do matter. And I think uh, getting your basics right, reward and recognition is important. I think from time to time they need to be rewarded for the good work that they're doing. You need to set up role models. You need to make them realize that their role models are as important as the white collar role models. They are called out in, you know, the six-monthly big annual reward and recognition functions. They are, you know, the days made, given a, you know, pride of place. Uh, Their uh, uh, contributions are acknowledged by the CEO. So all these things are important in managing. And I think ultimately it's about honesty, very simple, plain old habit, plain old value of being honest and transparent and simple, you know, Respect for people, irrespective of who you are, respect people, respect for people. I think mean, these are small things.
2: Uh, one thing which I have observed as a customer of Big Basket is my experience with the person who comes to deliver the product. I mean, you know, I, I see a certain amount of care uh, which you don't necessarily see from people who are delivering something. A lot of people will say, Ki, sir, I maine," But uh, that is not the case with, uh, you know, when I'm ordering groceries uh, through Big Basket. So how how did that kind of a care get developed in people that they actually care about the customers?
0: Right. So I don't know if you read this book by Sefi Beckel titled Loon Shots. In that talks of two types of innovations. The P-type innovation and the S-type innovation. The P-type innovation is a typical one like an iPhone or a Polaroid camera or a engine. Whereas an S-type of innovation is about being able to, you know, bring process, technology, audit, training, operations, everything together dovetailed in such a seamless way, in such a collaborative way, that you are able to deliver consistent customer experience millions of times, day after day, year after year. And for somebody who is seeing it from the outside, it won't even look like innovation. You might think, these guys must just be lucky getting the right kind of people who are just smiling and delivering stuff and who know how to handle every single interaction with the customer. It's not that way. So it's about being able to get the training, get process, get audit mechanisms, processes in place, do the right kind of training, reinforce training continuously on a regular basis and do this in such a way that it delivers an outstanding experience consistently day after day. And that's the kind of innovation which is uh, the S type of innovation. I think Big Basket has acquired mastery over the S type of innovation. A company like Amazon is also reasonably good at the S type of innovation. And the, the thing which I see is that they genuinely care. How do you
2: make people care through training? I mean, does that happen? That can you train a person to care? Uh, is it also like if uh, an employee feels that my boss cares for me, then he passes on that feeling of care to the customer?
0: It's a combination of everything, right from recruitment, which is that uh, in the recruitment itself, we try and uh, filter people, you know, who don't demonstrate empathy. So for example, we try and figure out how a delivery boy would behave towards women and towards, uh, you know, senior citizens. So we try and figure that out by provoking them, asking a few questions and seeing how they respond. Okay. So we do a filter at that level. We pick people who are soft-spoken, you know, who don't easily take umbrage, who, you know, deal with customers with, with uh, some degree of patience. So we talk, take soft-spoken and patient people and they go through a fairly comprehensive training, which is reinforced periodically and there's a feedback mechanism from the customers to identify those who tend to be a little rude and that feedback is passed on again to the individual's concerned, and they are put through refresher programs. So it's a complete uh, virtuous cycle, right? From recruiting to, you know, taking feedback from customers, training and then back to the feedback loop. Uh, what about getting the feeling that my boss cares and therefore that gets very important. So therefore I told you to treat people with respect. So that's a value. So, oh, if you can treat the blue-collar staff with respect, they feel happy. And happy people tend to also be uh, treat others that they meet uh, more polite. And that would
2: be something which only, I guess, a founder would be able to drive in an organization.
0: I would say largely in a small startup, founder equals culture. Yeah, in a small startup. larger companies, I think uh, the, more, uh, the leadership team equals the culture. So for
2: somebody who's like at an early stage founder, there is a lot of conventional wisdom that culture is more important than strategy and so on. But how should a founder think about culture or because, you know, they are struggling with day to day problems and maybe their their struggle is more about how do I pay salaries next month? So what should be their thought process about culture?
0: You know, Adam Smith, uh, in his book, uh, The Wealth of Nations, uh, had written that uh, a free market is the invisible hand that keeps the economy going. You know, you don't, uh, you know, a free market, there are no defined players who say, you know, how much of what is to be produced, how much of chicken is to be sent to Bangalore, how much, you uh, you know, rice is to be sent to Mumbai on the 23rd of August, for example, so the market forces determine how different actions in the economy take place the pricing you know is the signal that is being sent out between the suppliers and the buyers so simply culture is the invisible hand that runs organizations so it's important to understand this uh, invisible element of culture culture is something that you, what is what you do every day So, culture is not about just saying we are customer-centric. It is about whether you are customer-centric. It's not about leaders saying that we respect people. It is about whether leaders are respecting people. So, people don't care about what you say. They care about what you do. So, culture is about doing what you believe are the right things. And there are no set of things which say that this is right and that is wrong. Because different companies can have different cultures. And all cultures can possibly be, you know, working. While there are some toxic cultures which are to be, you know, ruled out by everybody, amongst other acceptable cultures, there are a range of them and all of them can be good. So, for example, Big Basket culture is very different from the culture at Daqsh. But both turned out unicorns, both turned out to be amazing companies. But the founders stood for a slightly different set of values in in both these companies. And that depends on the background of the founders, their upbringing, the business context, multiple things. So I would say founders in any company at early stage have to understand what are their values, what do they want to live by, what do they want to build the startups to stand for, and live those every day. If they believe, you know, what that paying people their salaries on time is important, this small thing that you mentioned, pay them on time, be committed to paying them on time. If you believe that respecting people is important, demonstrate respect every day, because other people are looking at you and they're seeing what you're doing. They are observing and imitating, and. Mediation will become genuine. So it's important to just do the right things. So I think culture is not such a great effort that you need to, you know, uh, read a lot. It's just that you live the values that you stand for every day. That's Mm -hmm. it. Mm -hmm. So you're
2: saying your culture is getting built irrespective of whether you're thinking about it or not just by virtue of the choices you make. Yes. Okay, okay. So uh, this is something which is... uh, more of a personal uh challenge which i'm facing uh in my own organization which i thought that i could bounce it off you um so i, I run a recruitment firm and what we did about a year or so back is uh, we we always had like team leaders but we decided to make team leaders as pnl heads and make them uh, responsible for their own pnl and therefore their incentive was linked to the Revenue that they generated and the cost which they incurred in terms of headcount. But mm-hmm. what I see now is that uh, the teamwork between these TNL heads, the flexibility with which employees used to switch between teams earlier has kind of stopped. Uh, team leaders hesitate to share their best resources with each other, um, which is a bit counterintuitive uh, to me. I would have thought that if you Make people owners of their CNL and empower them, and uh, you know that would uh, lead to a more productive organization. Um, do you have any advice for me?
0: Yeah, yeah, absolutely. So you know what uh, I would say that uh, to be very candid here, a lot of people leaders think that you know by putting in place incentive programs or by putting in place incentive plans their job is done because the incentive plans are going to drive people to take the right actions because the right. plans are aligned to whatever objectives the company wants to accomplish. Therefore, the incentive plans are going to all them. That's not true. I think need to make incentive plans work. I think, you know what, if you say, you know, all people come on time to the office at 9 o'clock because it's important and we we'll this as part of your KRA and your 5% weightage we're going to give it and your incentive will depend on that. That is Abdicating what they are supposed to do. If you want to put people into a classroom for training and people are not turning up, and if you put it as a part of their KRA with 10% weightage, then management is abdicating what they are supposed to be doing. So the role of management is to provide feedback to their team members, help them perform better, coach them in terms of new skills that are required, help them figure out how to run their organizations, how to give feedback, how to get the best out of their people, Const- constantly do all of that. And That if you can use an incentive plan, maybe it will be able to cement some of that. Incentive plans work really best when teams don't necessarily have a lot of handshakes. So, for example, sales incentive plans work really well because a salesperson doesn't depend a lot on other salespersons. But uh, where what you do determines the outcomes, what you do or don't do determines outcomes largely, then incentive plans work. But where what you do No, does not entirely determine the outcomes where somebody else, what they do also controls the outcomes that you deliver, then collaboration becomes important. So there you need to use incentive plans with a lot of smartness. So for example, when you create an incentive plan, you should also not ignore the fact that sharing resources between, you know, teams is important. So you need to figure out a way of recognizing people who share their best resources with other teams versus the people who are holding resources and call these behaviors out if you don't have a mechanism of calling these behaviors out occasionally once in a while and rewarding those who are sharing their best then you to go deeper into these wrong behaviors so i think management or leadership can never ever believe that incentive plans i can put in place and the rest you know, they will take care of not true you need to for example teach people how to run a P&L. you can't just say you are responsible for pnl and not may not be trained on what is P&L, how to run a pnl how to control costs so i think uh, it's uh, uh, incentive plans are just the icing on the cake of overall leadership they are not what leadership is all about what are the uh, spends that you do on hr services like you would have
2: some spend on people who provide you automation like darwin box you would have some spend on recruitment related tools or some spend on training related vendors so like what are the big uh, Spend, uh, which would somehow indicate that, okay, this could be an area which uh, is big enough for a
0: large company to emerge out of? Oh, only Darwin box. That's the only big spend. No other big spend. Okay. Uh, everything else you do in-house? Every uh, A lot of things we do uh, spend, but it's all very, very disaggregated and uh, little bits and pieces. no single large spend. So, what is your view on uh,
2: recruitment in-house? Like, you know, building a team and doing entirely in-house versus uh, uh, through vendors? And, you know, when should a company outsource? When should a company do it
0: in-house? I think when, uh, you know, it's a combination. Uh, So, you know, outsourcing has never been a black and white choice. So, for example, outsourcing from the U.S. to India, I think, has been a no-brainer to a large extent because of the cost arbitrage. But right. within a country, within India, for example, should a company outsource its services to another company within the country, where all star labor arbitrage does not exist, is not a back and white choice. I think uh, you know you can it can work both ways. You know in house will also work. There is not going to be a very significant cost difference. Uh, there are advantages both ways. I think uh, sometimes by having uh, by outsourcing it. Outsource companies understand the space better than uh, what uh, you you can understand in-house because outsource companies tend to be specialists. So you can be a specialist in recruitment, you can be a specialist in some type of service and it's impossible to build all that specialization in-house. So I think you need a combination both in learning and development as well as recruiting. Even in learning and development, I think it's important to outsource some programs and not try and develop every single program in-house because it's a waste of time. And you don't have the capability as well. But some programs you must develop in-house because you can't outsource. outsource guys will never understand your business imperatives, your situation. So I think it to always be a
2: combination. And, uh, any last advice that you would like to leave for someone who's just finishing his education and going to start out his career?
0: Uh, only uh, advice I can provide is uh, be curious, ask a lot of questions, do the right things for the right reasons. Don't chase vanity metrics and if you do the right things in the long run, you will be a happier individual.
1: So, ladies and gents, that was a masterclass by T.N. Hari, the HR head at Big Basket, whose unique outlook towards life and problem-solving abilities have made the functioning of the online shopping store look seamless in all aspects. If you're in the mood for spending some quick bucks or if you need every day groceries without having to step out, head to the Big Basket app now. If you like the Founder Thesis podcast, then do check out our other shows on subjects like marketing, technology, career advice, books, and drama. Visit thepodium.in that is t-h-e-p-o-d-i-u-m dot i n a complete list of all our shows.
0: This was an HD Smartcast original.
1: Log on to hdsmartcast.com to listen to more such podcasts.